Welcome to Interviews with Innocence, a podcast about spirituality, consciousness, and exploring the wisdom our children bring into this world. I believe that our very young children are our greatest teachers. After all, they're the masters of living in the present moment, bubbling in unconditional love, enjoying the messiness of life, and curious about the universe in all its dimensions. The pure essence that young children exhibit lives within all of us. My hope is that these interviews will help us discover, embrace, and connect with the sacred core of childhood that resides within each of our hearts. I am your host, Marla Hughes. Today, I am just so honored to have a very good friend Mark Galbo on the show. Mark and I go very far back. Um, well, it seems when, when my children were very small, they attended his beautiful rock and roll academy, and it was nothing less than magical for them. I think it's one of the most favorite things they ever did when during their during their summers. The Rock and Roll Academy is a research-based social emotional learning curriculum that provides an inclusive, equitable environment, meets participants where they truly are, and does this through the power of music. Now, this is me talking, um, as that sounds pretty academic, but all I know is that it changed my children's lives and Mark and his staff celebrated them for who they were and encouraged them. And I I still get tears in my eyes when I think about going to the shows and just seeing seeing the confidence and the love of music just blossom in in my kids. So so welcome to the program, Mark. Thank you so much for having me, Marla. I, I am so excited to have you here. And I got to listen to you play again the other night. By the way, Mark is also an amazing musician. And I so enjoyed listening to you do play again the other night at, at the Stephen Bean in Telluride, Colorado. Yeah, that's that's a rare occasion. I don't do that a lot. Yeah, I know. I know. I think synchronicity brought us together again. So, wow, how did this all begin? How, how did you begin down this path? So I spent, uh, upon graduating college uh, with a music degree, I was beginning to learn to be a musician and embarked on, you know, the path of an artist. But at the same time, I had begun coaching track and field. And um, a really life-defining moment for me was the first day I walked into uh, track and field practice as a coach, not knowing what I would do. I had a mohawk. I love it. I had an earring because it was the 80s and, um, you know, I was a musician. Uh, So when I was, you know, presented to the kids, they were all sitting down and I kneeled down in front of them because it seemed weird to me to stand up and talk at them. So I kneeled and I was only 20, 20, I was 20. So I kneeled down and I basically looked at them and said, look, um, I don't know how to coach. I've never coached before, but I know how to jump. So if you'll work with me, I'll, I'll try to teach you how to jump. And in that moment, upon looking back literally over 30 years later, almost 40 <laughs> years later, 
many of the um, elements of the way that I ultimately wrote into my methodology were all right there. I kneeled down uh, to be with them where they were. Um, I created what I call, call a shared learning environment. I immediately gave them permission to be themselves, that they did not have to be something they weren't, because um, I admitted I, I, I'm not something I'm not. I'm, I'm just here and I'm willing to learn with you. So that was a, a very uh, telling and powerful moment in my young selfish life as an artist. After that day, I was like, wow. Like it, I had something to focus on that wasn't me. Um, and that right. changed my life. And I was good at it. Like right away, I was like, I was good at relating to kids. There's a connection. I, I never really thought about it before. Um, and, uh, you know, I guess I'll tell one other quick story. So flash forward a month or two from there, I'm outside working with a bunch of junior high kids at that moment. And I'm, my job is to uh, run the long jump. And so I got 30 kids that are running all around me and, and I'm just standing there with the clipboard trying to sign them up. And a lady walked up. I saw her she, in my peripheral vision. She stood away at a distance. And at a moment where there was no kid around, she walked right up to me and she looked me in the eye and she said, are you a teacher? And I said, um, I said, I, I coach. She goes, are you a teacher? And I said, I teach guitar. She said, you're not a teacher, a full-time teacher. And I said, no. And she was very direct. And, and I didn't know what quite she was looking for. She said, well, listen, I'm a teacher. I come from a family of teachers. My grandparents are teachers. My parents are teachers, my <laughs> brothers and sisters. And we were raised to believe that if you have a gift with children, it is your responsibility to be a teacher. And um. as I died... So I'm, I'm sitting, and she said, you have a gift with children and it is your responsibility to be a teacher. And I, I just stood there kind of speechless looking at her and she was very aware that I was working with kids because she's a teacher. Right. And so she looked me in the eye. She said, you remember me and you remember I told you this. And then she walked away. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So I would, I would call that an angel in your path. Oh, wow. Because I was so naturally good with kids, it didn't dawn on me that someone else might not be. Like, I didn't sit there right. and think, oh, I'm really good at this thing. It was very natural for me. So yeah. she, she, essentially, I believe, Marla, what she did is she welcomed me into the tribe of teachers where I belonged. And, and she, I think she understood that I didn't know that. I mean, I was 20 years old. Yeah. So uh, that's... That's a big part of the story. And the other part is I was an artist. I was playing. And, and once you're a professional musician, you're surrounded by sculptors and painters and writers and actors. And so I had one foot in the world of art and one foot in the world of children. And I observed that these artists and these children are very, very similar in how they will work if you allow them to. The difference was the children didn't have the power or the right to say no. Right. No, thank you. I'd rather not. <laughs> Whereas an artist, yes. you don't walk into an artist student, uh, artist studio and say, hey, sit down, listen to me. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm going to tell you some things that you don't care about. Um, so I both saw the similarities between the artists and the children, and I became very familiar. Uh, I had a chance to work with incredible artists in, in um, you know, live performances, uh, recordings, writings, all sorts of things. And so I, 
you know, became very familiar with the creative process. Um, right. and, and then um, I spent years observing kids. I just observed them. I'd observe them in what I call free play. I observed them in semi-supervised and over-supervised situations, parents, teachers. And I saw what, how kids would naturally learn um, and that we mostly, <laughs> no offense, but we mostly just interrupt them constantly. Right. If we would only slow down and listen and just let them be. Yeah, and, and yes. figure out, Figure out, first of all, that they are not trying to manipulate us. They are not trying to get out of doing work. They want to integrate into their community and into their families and into their tribes. They would prefer doing so <laughs> in the way that their DNA is telling them to do so. <laughs> um, so we've set up a lot of systems that are um, in opposition to that. And that's very, very troubling for children because they right. want to be loved. And so they will sacrifice their inner instincts to receive love and approval from well-intentioned adults. Yes. Yes. I had one, I had one guest on that was taught. This really touched me that said, you know, children will observe that those one or two things that you liked about you like about that child that child does really well and they'll make their whole you know persona about that yeah. for your approval but all the rest of it you know is where did that go and it's such a disservice such a disservice so anyway so how did it happened that you created then the Rock and Roll Academy from all this observing children and loving them and the music and, and how did that begin? So I didn't remember this till after I started the Rock and Roll Academy, but somewhere when I was around 22, I had a, I literally had a dream at night of a school that I had founded. And I thought about that for a few days and I remember even talking to one friend about it. I remembered this all later because I didn't like then for 20 years go, I'm going to found a school. After I founded a school, I had a moment of where I went, oh, oh my God, like I dreamed this over 20 years ago. Um, I didn't know the details of the school, but I knew that it would be my school and that I would work in a way that was different. Uh, I didn't know what that meant. Um, so there was that, there was that seed. And then a part of it, Marla, was uh, I was making a living. Like at that point, I had two or three children of my own. We had moved near Telluride, but not to Telluride. And, and I came to Telluride. Well, there's another little part. When I was in Vermont in 1995 or thereabouts, I ran an open mic. And it was very successful. And people came from all over the country to Burlington, Vermont. And yes. you know, fish had come out of Burlington, Vermont. So it was, you know, musicians would go there. So I ran this right. open mic and met people from all over. And one night I met a guy and he walks, you know, he play, he kind of got, you know, he signed up and played and got to know me a little. And he said, he looked at me and he very specifically, and he said, have you ever heard of Telluride? Telluride, Colorado? <laughs> and well, it felt familiar to me. The answer was, uh, I don't think so. And he looked at me, he goes, you would do great in Telluride. <laughs> said, you, you could rule Telluride is what he said, like as a musician, you know? So that happened. 
life events brought me to Utah, then they brought me to Telluride. Um, I originally came here with the Blues and Brews Festival. Oh, you did? I didn't know yeah, that. Well, I, I'm trying to not be too far reaching in the whole thing, but it's, 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 That's okay. it's all a story and it's a good story. So I'm living in yeah. Monticello, Utah, because... Yeah. So wait a, wait a second. I, I actually know Monticello because I spent... I lived on an Indian reservation for a while, and that's what eventually brought me to tell you right. But really quick question. So you went L.A. to Utah to Vermont. Yeah, okay, to so that, Matt, is New York City, <laughs> yes. L.A., yes. to Vermont, to San Francisco, to Monticello. Wow, Monticello. The okay. I went to Monticello is because Jessica, my wife, her mom, Candace, was a river runner. And that's what she wanted to be. So Jessica and I were- Who knew? That explains a lot of things. Jessica and I were married. <laughs> and we then went to San Francisco and we found out we were pregnant on uh, Christmas day when we were visiting in Monticello. Candace said, would you play music for you know some of the people here? We don't get to hear live music. And that night I met the local doctor, Nathaniel Penn, who said, if you move here from San Francisco, I will trade you prenatal care and childbirth for guitar lessons. <laughs> I said, come on, man. That's crazy. Um, my joke is that later I figured out that he got the better end of the deal because <laughs> Not the greatest. Right? Oh, yes, yes. Our plan was we'll come and have the baby and leave six months later. Right. Jessica's joke was we're like pilgrims who came here in a wagon. The wheels have fallen off and we can't get them back on. We lived in Monticello <laughs> for four years, 11 months and five days. We had three children. <laughs> but who was counting? Who was counting? Um, <laughs> and during that time, we rented Candace's she had a little house that was different than the house she lived in and we had it was very it was an old church it was tiny um and it had very little kind of you know it was very rustic but she had put in cable radio for some reason and Jessica used to listen to Kodo and one day I came in and I heard an advertisement for Blues and Brews because I recognized the artist. And now I had quit music. I want nothing to do with music. Oh, yeah. Oh. Quit music. I was cooking because I'm Sicilian and I can run a restaurant if I need to. So I just needed to not play music. I wanted to be a family person. But I heard the names of people that I knew and had worked with. I wrote down Steve Gumbel's name and the number and left that scrap of paper. Maybe a week or so later, Jessica must have found it and called up. And get this. He said... They had a conversation where he said, I want to start an educational component, something like they do in West Virginia. And she goes, oh, my husband taught in West Virginia at the Augusta Festival for 16 years. So that was the event. I came here as a performer and an educator and founded the Telluride Blues Camp, I guess it was called. And um, I met Dave Lamb. I met this person, I met that person, and the next thing you knew, uh, we had moved uh, over to this area. And it was the wow. gift of Telluride. And, and people, you know, so you might come here for this or that reason. And everyone has a great story as to why they came to Telluride. Um, I did not come to ski. I do not ski. Um, I say I was led here by the nose ring of my destiny, and that destiny was to found this school. Yes.
Wow, what what a great story. It reads as a novel, you know, I'm I'm a true believer that our life is I mean, we do have some free will, but a lot of it is is planned and we create the lessons that we we want to want to the experiences so we learn the lessons yep, that we want absolutely. to learn. Absolutely. And wow, yours just reads everything just sort of just happened and here you are. So tell us about um, about the Rock and Roll Academy. I know you talk about educating the whole child te um, teaching method. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? So, yes, ma'am. Thank you for asking. And, and here's my, <laughs> you know, my comical way of putting that, uh, but it's true. So this idea of this is whole child learning. My, my <laughs> comment, well, right. And you got to pick out yeah. and put a stake in the ground. So right, right. Is you are always teaching the whole child because that child showed up today. Yes. So, right. Love so that. My take on it is I just, so I did what I did very intuitively. I've had great mentors and teachers in my life, uh, but I, I um, worked with children from that place of heart that I'm saying the first time I was ever asked to work with children, I kneeled down in front of them yes. and said, will you learn with me? So that was just who I was. So, so I, but then eventually say, well, gosh, you know, I got to call this something. Uh, okay, we'll we'll use uh, you know whole child learning and whatever. But my my comment is the whole child has shown up. The child um, is shown up in the emotional state they're in. They may be hungry. Um, they may be frightened. Um, you cannot, in my take on things, start talking at a child if they don't feel safe and seen in your presence. I have asked thousands of children and adults all over the country to tell me to think of their favorite teacher they ever had. And I say, why was that teacher your favorite? And with the rare exception, 99.8%, everyone says they were kind. Love it. And then they'll tell you, well, in this and that. But in general, no, in general, like overwhelmingly, 99%, they were kind. And then it turns out, well, and I learned a lot. Well, yeah. And even tough love, like in the old days, um, you knew that teacher loved you. And you mm -hmm. knew that teacher was determined to help you learn. But the love was always palpable. So I forget the question, Marla. Yes, yes. Well, whatever, whatever it was, you answered it. <laughs> we were talking about the whole, the whole child. Yeah, that's right. The whole child showed up. So um, tell us about like a day in the life. Like, so what do you do at the Rock and Roll Academy? <laughs> I know, but <laughs> so, tell us about a child walking in and, and how, what happens? Yeah. So the, the, there's an 18 unit learning cycle of the Rock and Roll Academy, which kids know nothing about, right? Uh, they know some of the terminology, like listen to the room or musicians use your eyes. Um, but, um, a filmmaker <laughs> whose name will have to come back to me, uh, cause I can't remember right now, uh, was asked, how do you direct a film? And he said, I don't direct a film. I set up an atmosphere and the atmosphere directs the film. So I will actually look in one of my books here and, and, and name for us. So the first unit in rock and roll Academy is set up an atmosphere. So a child should walk into an environment that feels magical 
and warm and welcoming. And the atmosphere is the beautiful red walls and the instruments and the cool lighting, but it is also an atmosphere, plain and simple, of unconditional love and acceptance. And kids are smart enough to kind of smell out, sense, taste, true freedom when they're around it. Yes. So that's the secret sauce is I see you and uh, hi, uh, what are we going to do, you know? And ultimately through the years that evolved, <laughs> God bless me, into a choices within <laughs> boundaries model. Because boundaries, as it turns out, and discipline from the standpoint of disciple and learning, you know, boundaries are important. Mm-hmm. You know, we need of to provide boundaries, and that that's a, a, a wonderful and um, specific form of love. And that took me some years because I'm like, I don't know, I just whatever. Well, that's not- yeah. We'll just we'll just play. So, do these kids know how to play musical instruments no. at all? No. So, one of the, the beauties and amazements uh, for people who observe the program is um, that the kid will after you know, even four or five days in a summer rock camp, but certainly over a semester, we'll learn to play two or three instruments, like at a performance level. Now, they're not Yo-Yo Ma, and no, no, nobody picks up an instrument in any educational model and three months later has mastered that instrument. Right. Um, I made a decision based upon, I'm a big fan of John Holt, who was uh, considered the father of unschooling, although he never intentionally uh, meant to be that. But, you know, he's got some great concepts and very tuned into children. And, and one of, he had the idea about reading. Um, and I love this analogy. He's, and he called it placing the big idea before the small idea. So mm-hmm. to an, a well-intentioned adult, and again, I'm not trying to be, have an attitude here or whatever. Um, I'm just saying, you know, the idea from the adult side is my kid needs to learn to read. To a kid, now we're in a different culture now with cell phones, et cetera. John Holt didn't deal with that. But John Holt's take on it was, no, no, no. That's the small idea. The big idea is the child sees these adults holding this thing, and it's their thing, and it's important to them. And they spend a lot of time looking at this thing. So the first thing we do is we give the child the book. We welcome the child into the world of book holding. <laughs> book being. So yes. that struck me very much. And I had taught 21 years of private guitar lessons. I wrote five books with lots of little notes in them. And I coached a lot, baseball, track and field, basketball. And I understood, here's what I'm going to do in my school. I'm going to place the big idea before the small idea. The small idea is these kids need to learn notes. The big idea is, you know what? I walked into this place and five minutes later, I was in a band on a stage with my friends. (laughs) That's the big idea. So let them have the big idea. And I have observed children make sound, cacophonous sound, a rhythmic sound that most people would run away from. And they, if I can keep my mouth shut, they will eventually finish and look at each other and go, that was awesome. So who am I to take away that experience from them? Right. Right. So the big idea. And once, and then they will literally get to a point on the stage where they will look at each other and then they'll look at the adult in the room. That's what I call them. I don't like the word teacher, 
the adult in the room, and they will say, we don't know how to do anything. Can you help <laughs> us? And we go, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I think also just bringing creativity back into their world too. You know, it's, it's so important because in this world today, so much of the arts and music, which is an art, you know, they're being they're not celebrated like, like they used to be. And, and you're just such a wonderful, you're the gold example of how important it is. So do you have any, like a story about, you know, one of the kids that just kind of came in, I don't know, tell, tell us a story about one of your students that just kind of blew you away. If you can think of one right off the top of your head. Well, when, when, when I think of that question, I think of how the kids relate to the sacredness of the space, that they intuitively understand this is sacred. I don't tell them that, um, but they understand that. So I've seen several examples so something happens in that room that is, is, uh, is hard to put into words. Uh, and it, it carries on into the performance. I have a, a mentor of mine, Jim Kidd, who ran many schools in Southern Florida, who when they do their program, there's 600 people that come because there's 200 kids in the program. And Jim, after the concert, he looked at me and he said, you could point 50 cameras at this room and stage and you could never understand what just happened in this room. Right, right. So there's a palpable feeling of sacredness and love that occurs. And the impact I've seen, what happens with kids is they get very protective of that space. So one quick story is I had a, again, you know, a well-meaning teacher who, you know, the Telluride Rock and Roll Academy is inside um, a school, Telluride Mountain School, uh, my wonderful partner, you know, uh, Mountain School. The teacher walked in and kind of was following a kid who maybe hadn't handed something in or tucked the chair in, and they used the kind of typical teacher voice. Like, hey, you know, kind of use this voice. And right, everyone right, in right. the room rose and looked at him, and it was quiet for about, you know, five seconds. And they all looked at him, and finally one little kid, it was a fifth grade, he goes, you can't talk to us like that in here. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so and I was kind of like, I was like, wow. And also kind of like horrified, but I'm like, yes, you yes. Can't really talk like that in here. Right. Another right. Quick example that's similar, a teenage girl whose family was going through a difficult divorce was in the room and an argument ensued between uh, two other bandmates. And this particular girl was a real leader, um, personally and musically. She was good at everything. And she was to help everyone. And she watched with increasing um, despair, is not too strong of a word, as this argument ensued. And she was never emotional in that room. She was cheerful, happy. And she, after a minute or more of this kind of, you know, argument it wasn't horrible. It wasn't horrible, nasty. It was just like not. She burst into tears and she said, "You can't do that here." 
I wow. come here because this place, that doesn't happen here. <laughs> like, oh, I we, love that. We in amazement as we watch this girl who never was emotional. We're like, <gasps> like, and you know what? That band, <laughs> there were no more arguments in that band. Right, I don't know if that's right. exactly what you're looking for, but that's yeah, what I've oh, seen. Oh, no. Those... Protection. Those are so, those are great stories. I, I want to say just a quote here also that you quote in your, in your literature from Dr. Daniel Levitin. Um, Memory strength is also a function of how much we care about the experience. We tend to code as important things that carry with them a lot of emotion. And it was titled, This Is Your Brain on music. So I, I, you know, just talking about that sacred space and, and in that the experience is really ineffable. You can't, you can't explain it. And I just had an interview yesterday with, with this guy who had this profound NDE and he was talking about divine experiences in your lifetime and those are the sorts of things he was talking about. Just when you get that feeling, when that that little girl or little boy or whomever it is, that's that's a piece of the divine. That's a piece of the spiritual, you know. And so that's what you're that's what you're finding in all of this. I also um, got this. I, I'm not sure if this is from Doctor Levine, but it says playing in, in a band is a social experience. Playing music is an emotional experience. By removing written notation, learning music becomes an intrinsically social act. Students choose songs that they connect with socially and emotionally. And you also said, once the students get on the instruments, their personality starts shining. They start getting curious. And that's, what, that's where learning begins, with curiosity. Actually, that was a quote from one of your facilitators, Mario. Mario Castro. So that, that that's so profound. So how can we, do you feel, you've got four kids. <laughs> how do you feel like we can bring this in to our children today to have that curiosity and have that creativity and, and be able to, to just be a little, have a sense of maybe more inner strength because I think that this is what this does for these child, these children too, exactly what the kind of work that you're doing. So what are the greatest lessons the children have taught you? I guess that's my question. Well, it, when I'm listening to you speak and trying to think what I might say that is helpful in some way, it takes a lot of restraint, courage, and faith to allow the space both time-wise and even physically, but especially time-wise, to allow the space um, for children to make the first move, kind of. Um, I'm bored. Good. Good. I don't need to solve that for you. Um, and, and there's different situations, because it's so much harder, I think, being a parent than it is being a teacher, right? Mm -hmm. You know. Um, parents would tell me through the years, uh, you're really good. You know, they'd call me up and maybe have worked with the child since they're seven. As one of the cool things in my program, 
um, is that I got to work with kids over 10 years, right? Most teachers get a kid for a year or whatever, or maybe four years as a coach. I mean, I had a chance to work with kids from eight years old to 18 years old. So we developed these amazing relationships and the parents would realize this is a trusted relationship my son or daughter has. So it would not be unusual for a parent to call me up when when their daughter was 16 or 17 and say, hey, I'm really struggling right now. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I know my daughter trusts your opinion. What do you think? And I'd always start with the same thing, which is, well, you know, that's because I'm not the parent. You know, I'm, I'm I'm this person, you know, that they see you know, once a week for 90 minutes or whatever. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think it's much, obviously much harder to be a parent, but to, to get back to your question, which is, you know, how can we integrate or encourage uh, creativity? I mean, that's a really big question. Um, I, I think that um, what are we doing um, ourselves? Yes. You know, are we, um, are we consumers or, uh, solely or are we creators? Do we use technology uh, to create or merely to consume? So they're watching that, of course. Um, And then I do think the thing I said about restraint, courage, and faith, it takes courage to trust and it's that's where it's so hard as a parent because you're you're just worried about their well-being and it compromises us right in a way to be that mentor that allows them the space to and the unconditional love again to feel safe enough to uh, make mistakes in front of us. Um, so you had mentioned <laughs> that quote. I laughed because um, that's something I wrote. Some you've done a great job at pulling these things together, and I can recognize. Okay, <laughs> I wrote that. I don't know when. I don't know where. But I think I know why. Um, so the three drivers of Rock and Roll Academy are. It is um, you know choice-based, it's social, and um, it's play-based. So so if you get into the whole play-based learning thing and uh, social constructivism, Lev Vygotsky, etc., um, you know, there is no more effective teacher for a kid than another kid, especially a slightly yes. older kid. Um, and so if the adult can get in right relationship with that, and, uh, you know, serve as a witness to that, um, the social becomes very powerful. So I made a decision. I read and write music, but, but I didn't. So written notation does a bunch of things. It, it, um, but one thing it does in the room in the moment is it makes the kid look and think instead of listen and feel. So, so if you're looking at the tablature or the, the notation, you are looking and you are thinking. And it takes a long time to get to the point where you have the degree of mastery where those notes come off the page in a very expressive way. It takes a right. long time. And most people, like 96% of people, aren't going to make that journey. They're not going to get to that point. So I made the decision early on, and this goes back to some of my mentors, the blues masters, who taught by ear and by example. They just show you over and over and over and over and over again until you got it. Um, That had additional impact is that you felt very socially and personally connected to that person. So when I say by removing written notation, learning music becomes an intrinsically social act. If there's no music to listen to, 
or excuse me, if there's no music to look at, the student has to listen and look at the other kids and ask. Yeah. And does that go back to the, does that go back to the music masters in West Virginia? It does. That you, yes, it does. Because um, another, another thing that you wrote that I loved, the music masters of West Virginia, much of the content they conveyed has not, has been forgotten, whether it was eventually videotaped or not. What will not be forgotten, however, is the capacity they held for unconditional love and acceptance of those who came before them, those who came before them in the tradition and those who came before them as learners. And just, I just have to read this. I'm so, the masters understood they were temporary keepers of a knowledge with a long lineage of learners. In their presence, you were seen as someone who was a part of that their tradition by virtue of your presence alone. The sacred gift of belonging, community, and inclusion was imparted to each and every learner. The DNA of that gift lives on today in the Rock and Roll Academy. <sighs> Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, it, thank you. Um, you know, that brings uh, tears to my eyes, a lot of emotion. Uh, to me, uh, John Jackson, John Cephas, specifically, um, for, you know, I don't even know how to speak to it. I mean, I mean, what it says is, is what it is that. Yes, absolutely. So the blues guys do a thing. They play this very profound music. And, and, you know, you know, blues is a very, very, is an extremely varied genre of music. There's urban, there's rural, a country, there's, you know, up-tempo. I mean, there's, there's a billion different approaches to the blues. No matter what they would play, even if it was a somber or sad song, they'd hit the last chord and they, there's this particular laugh that they would laugh, just this chuckle. And the chuckle always conveyed to me that they understood they were not as important as the music. And even the big ones, because I played music with B.B. King. Even yeah. someone like B.B. King, he never had the impression that I'm B.B. King. He's like, yeah. he's like, oh man, you know, it's the blues and I get to be a part of it right now. Uh, it was before me, wow. it would be here after me. And, and a, a particularly powerful part of <laughs> what you're saying there is this, in their presence, you were seen as someone who was a part of their tradition by virtue of your presence alone. So a long time ago, um, I read, and I will admit to you, because I bought the book in Laguna Beach. I bought it in 1987, <laughs> January of 1987, Ramtha. Ramtha, are you familiar? No, I'm not. Ramtha is an entity who is channeled. And I uh -huh. the first book. I'm, 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 I don't remember the author. And I don't remember, uh, but similar to Seth, right? The Seth works, you know, it's a yes, channel. Yes, yes, uh-huh. Yes. Um, and when you read that language, like you just sit there and think, first of all, I, I can't really argue with this. And second of all, nobody talks that way. You know, like, come on. That's not some person, right? So it, Rantha was a, a wonderful book that I read as a 25-year-old. 
And in there, there's a quote I never forgotten. It was this, the fact that you exist means more than anything you will ever do. Wow. One, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm very impressed you're reading channeling. When well, that's a long time old. ago. Um, but, but think about that. The fact that you yes, you exist means more than anything you will ever do. And the Blues Masters, right. and I would hope the Rock and Roll Academy embodies that. You are seen mm -hmm. and acknowledged, and it, it, you, you've already, it's already, you're already there. Yes. Now let's, you want to have some fun? You want to something? <laughs> exactly. But you have nothing to prove to me. Yeah. So A beautiful message. Right? From, yeah, to, to the children of the world, oh my God. For, the ch for the children of the Constantly world. Constantly are bombarded with, you know, expectations, um, images, situations that tell them you're not good enough. You're not enough. Yeah, yes, but people like you and others hopefully are beginning to to change that change that message a bit i i hope anyway but anyway mark we have to wrap it up and so i i'd really like to have for you to come back and talk about the corrections program because we didn't even get to talk about that yeah. and for my listeners mark works with um youth who have have gotten into some trouble and you go in and work with them so so we'll do that next time okay i can't thank you enough thank you yeah I, I can't thank you enough and if people want to find you how how would they do that well uh rock and roll academy.com okay it, it would be a, a good place to start and then i have on instagram rock and roll academy inc inc um where i post about the program so that would be two logical places. Great. And this will all be in the show notes also. Well, Mark, thank you so much. Stay safe. Yep. I kind of wish I was in Telluride with, with you, but um, have safe, stay safe. And thank you so much for just such an awakening, inspiring interview. This was just really special for me. Wouldn't happen without you. So thank you for yeah. what you do. <laughs> Thank you. You have a great evening. Likewise. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening in today. If you want to learn more about the show, you can find us at interviewswithinnocence.com and on Facebook or Instagram at interviewswithinnocence. Please write me a message. Tell me what you liked and let me know what else you would like to hear. I would love to hear from you. And if you liked what you heard, please leave us an iTunes rating and review. It helps other listeners find the show. Thank you.